Welcome to the Political Economy Forum's podcast. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Forum. Co-hosting with me today is podcast regular, professor and Forum co-founder, Victor Minaldo. Hi, Victor. Hey, James. Today's episode is about the gig economy and the future of work. Even before the COVID pandemic, gig economy and future of work were two phrases that were not only gaining coverage in the popular media and news, they were also something that economists and policy wants have been discussing for some time. And now with COVID, gig economy and future of work are even more salient concerns for academics, the public, and policymakers at the national, state, and local level. But what exactly is the gig economy? What do we know about the future of work? Should we fear automation? And what, if any, should be the role of government in helping American workers navigate these rough waters? To tackle these questions today, Victor and I are joined by Ben Glasner. Ben is the doctoral candidate at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington, an affiliate of the Political Economy Forum. Ben's research focuses on how where a person works relates to their access to the social safety net and labor market protections. He is particularly interested in how changing the nature of work pushes us to reconsider these old arrangements. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. Hi, James. And hi, Victor. I'm really happy to be here. Ben, what do economists mean by workers in the gig economy, or what you refer to as non-standard work arrangements in your work? So that's kind of one of the first questions that people really have to face when they start jumping into this literature, and they are almost always disappointed by the fact that we really don't have a definition for it. It's relatively inconsistent across different academics, policymakers, and even socially. So kind of the first thing that we want to think about with this is who are the broad overlapping workers or different types of work arrangements we think about. And these usually kind of start falling on independent contractors, self-employed workers. But depending on whether you're thinking about it historically or in today's day and age, you might also start including day laborers, vendors on premises, different temporary agency workers. So really, it's actually quite a long and diverse field of workers and changes depending on which policymaker or economist might be thinking about the question. So, so then how do economists measure this technically? Like who, who qualifies as a gig worker in the kinds of data sets that you use? So we usually start off with kind of a simple question on who is kind of the traditional worker. And then we start looking at who doesn't fall in that category. And historically, the traditional model of kind of 40 hours a week, generally working consistently for the same employer in repeated actions or different jobs or types of work are who we try and think of are not gig workers. So we start taking that as the not. So then we look towards workers who maybe are doing temporary short-term arrangements, people doing contracts or maybe one and done types of work. And this has kind of given rise to the idea of independent contractors as kind of the model of gig workers today. People who are doing temporary short-term work arrangements for a single employer or multiple at once, and who have no real kind of long-term ambition of working within the same company or for the same client. So give us some examples. Uh, well, we can think about uh, the traditional model of an independent contractor as maybe someone who might be doing some tiling or someone who's like a temporary construction or home repair agent. So you might hire someone to fix some plumbing with not expecting them to come back week after week after week to check on it. And we might think of the modern model as the online gig economy, someone who might be driving for Uber or Lyft or someone opening up their home or apartment for Airbnb. Victor... Hasn't the gig economy been sort of what most people have been involved in in most of human history? I mean, companies, manufacturing, kind of the, the company man, you know, 40 hours a week, that's relatively new, isn't it? Haven't most of us been gig, some type of gig worker for most of human history? Well, I don't want to offer any sweeping answer that covers every time period, but we could think about recent history, let's say, and by recent 250 years span. And in that case, I think the answer is yes, a vertically integrated firm that does everything in-house and doesn't outsource at all is kind of like a late 19th century consolidated during the Cold War is less frequent now in 2020 than it was during that time stylized fact. So vertically disintegrated supply chains where there's a lot of outsourcing going on, both upstream and downstream, 
I don't know if I want to say that's the historical norm because maybe I'm missing something, but for sure that seems like a more dominant pattern, at least when it comes to manufacturing um, before vertical integration really sped up uh, during the heyday of the so-called second industrial revolution, for example, when you think of big firms that are producing at large scale and doing a lot of their own R&D, uh, doing a lot of their own distribution, doing a lot of producing inputs even themselves rather than outsourcing those. Uh, and uh, employees would be another part of that, right? Do you vertically integrate by having them on salary versus on a bid basis or contract basis that's more informal, part-time, ad-libbing almost, or, or in an ad hoc way? Ben, how do you understand historically non-standard work arrangements? I think of it kind of in a similar light in that it there was clearly a time, um, we'll use the 250-year range that Victor kind of specified, that these types of individuals existing within the market was the more common place work arrangement. You can think about how maybe like the modern-day Etsy worker, someone at home developing or producing some product to sell on the Etsy marketplace is really just a modern version of the cottage industries where different people were at home as craftsmen and doing small workshops. And that transition to large factories was a more recent in the last hundred years development as a change from that model. And we can think about really kind of the historical context of this work within the US as a particular microcosm of that same shift where people went from being an individual participating in a market to being an individual participating in a firm that's vertically organized or in a hierarchy that then is also participating in a larger marketplace, but you're kind of internalized and sheltered from the market as it is. Do we want to think about the way in which all of us are now working online or working remotely, or most of us are, as a potential disruption to the vertical hierarchies with which we're used to working. So Victor and I are professors at the University of Washington, but we're now working remotely. Does the COVID disruption and the need to do all of this remotely at all change that vertical integration? Or are we fundamentally, when we're working remotely, that's different than a person selling a product online that they've created, doing it remotely? I think that honestly, it is more similar to kind of that break away from vertical integration than a lot of people kind of expect in that the modern day breakaway person or participant looks more like for you or for Victor is kind of a high skilled if we're going to use that and I can't show air quotes on the podcast but high skilled worker air uh, quotes or scare quotes you have to clarify <laughs> I'll go with scare quotes then um, <laughs> but we want to think about those individuals participating in that kind of like knowledge-based economic role as someone who might be similar to like an Upwork programmer, someone saying, I can participate, produce, say, a 10-minute video on a topic that students can then access for a fee. And right now, the university that, or the University of Washington is kind of moderating that exchange. But in the same way where you might expect Uber or Lyft to be moderating an internal marketplace, it's just kind of taking that transaction a little, a few steps away from your current model. But there's nothing really preventing the future platform university in that way or something kind of similar to that. Victor, are you worried? I mean, you and I were basically barely able to turn on computers before COVID hit. And now we have to do everything online, <laughs> including our lectures. I mean, why, why limit? I mean, if we have to be recording our lectures and sending them out anyway, why not just have the Etsy of college lectures where, you know, for every download, somebody could watch it and pay some amount of money and just listen to what we have to say about fill in the blank. Can we become gig workers with the same thing that we're doing and monetize it? I don't think it's that simple for the following reason. Uh, listeners of this podcast and James in particular uh, knows that one of my uh, intellectual um, inspirations or hobby horses, if you will, is Ronald Coase. And the fundamental idea he has about vertical integration is that if the transaction costs are high, you vertically integrate. And once they're south of some threshold, you outsource. And when I think about these digital platforms, yes, they reduce transaction costs in some ways, but maybe they don't reduce them in the along the fundamental dimension where you would be able to vertically disintegrate, let's say, education. 
I'd have to think a bit more about it, but it seems that there's certain costs still with screening, with monitoring, with uh, in the incentive structure of uh, how to reward educators, where vertical integration, even if it's digital, still makes sense. So it wouldn't necessarily be like a, a task rabbit type thing with the uh, a spot market or an auction even or something like that, there could still be considerable vertical integration, but just using digital platforms to be more productive. And in that case, actually, you could have a good outcome. I think uh, vertical integration makes sense for our transaction cost problem in higher education, but yet we suffer from very low productivity due to the fact that we're a service sector and it's hard for us to use technology in a way that mirrors some of the more tangible sectors of the economy. This is Baumol's cost disease, right? Services are more inefficient usually. Uh, and their main uh, impediment is the inability to diffuse technology. And however, on the other hand, uh, their human capital costs go up because those folks that they hire compete on the larger market. So they have to bid up the wages for those people. Healthcare, education are two examples. Government is sometimes an example. I don't. I hope this isn't getting too far afield, but I would not be that brazen to predict that we are disrupting the vertical integration of higher education. Let me go back just to screening, but, and, I'll, and I'll end but, there. Screening is still very important. Like, how do you actually screen the people that are doing the work, right? John, what I'm suggesting is that you and I could make available for some amount of money the same thing that we're doing and make it available to the public if they were willing to pay for it. We could capitalize on the fact we've already been screened, I suppose, right? So we're vetted, right? We have reputations. We have a publication record uh, and the like. So yeah, I guess like we could, but at some point, how do you solve the next generation problem? You need to find a way to screen the, the people providing the service, or they need to be able to signal their ability to do that in a, in a marketplace where there's a lot of uh, uncertainty or haze around their, their ability, aptitude, quality, competence, all that, right? So here's, here's one of the things that I think is a good staging point for that, particularly because you bring up COSA's theorem as kind of transaction cost being the motivation for the vertical integration. I think for me, as someone who has just gone through undergrad and has been going through grad school and been TAing econ courses, I find that a lot of students will supplement the education courses in economics, for example, with Khan Academy and YouTube videos that are offering those online lectures already at zero cost to them. And so they're able to supplement resources by using that type of open marketplace. And I would argue that if any one of us individually were to try and upload videos, we would be outcompeted by the name brand Khan Academy on YouTube to kind of supply any information that they already are supplying. But if the University of Washington were to post, here is our selection of lectures filmed and recorded by professors at the university, that might outcompete some open source Khan Academy source. So I think that there's a case for vertical integration for that reputation or kind of that screening process, but I'm not sure if we would really need it for the actual education as much as for the validation of its being good. Yeah, and I was also thinking that I think one of the reasons that MOOCs never took off mass, massive online, what is it, massive online something courses or content is, is that uh, the consumer side doesn't really work. I mean, the quote unquote consumer for college education is different than the consumer who's interested in listening to, you know, the great courses or an individual lecture, right? And our students are actually quote unquote integrated into the life of the university in such a way that you can't, you can't just kind of listen to one lecture and then you get you got a college education right and so i think on the on the student slash consumer side the models are very different as well yeah and the demand isn't only to be uh in a sense fed with information in your brain it's the social stuff and uh the networks that you create when you're in school it's the amenities and it's the signaling value of the diploma and the question going back to ben's point is what is the signaling value of completing a getting a credential from Khan Academy versus the University of Washington in the greater uh, Seattle area? So whether you could do that in a vertically disintegrated way or not, I, I'm not sure. But uh, some of the screening is screening of the students so that they can signal their type to employers, right? So exactly, there, there's a lot that goes on in the four corners of the university where the vertical integration model might make sense again, complemented by, by 
Khan Academy and maybe um, supercharged by digital platforms. And we should clarify that it's Khan, K-H-A-N, not C-O-N. I would never want anyone to think that they should get a, they should, yeah, look look at the Khan Academy. That probably has a, less of a reputation than Trump University. Um, Ben, I wanted to transition to kind of what the core, uh, one of the core aspects of your dissertation is, because it sort of both relates to the way that you approach this with the gig, the gig economy, but also how people kind of uh, naturally think about their place in the labor market, which is with respect to the minimum wage. So you're, in your dissertation in your first chapter, you deal with how the minimum wage affects people who are not eligible to receive it, um, people who are self-employed or independent contractors, your gig economy. And your chapter titled The Minimum Wage, Self-Employment and the Online Gig Economy um, deals with this specifically. I'm, I'm wondering what inspired you at first to study this aspect of the gig economy that is with respect to how it's affected by and affects the minimum wage. So I think what kind of first motivated me to look into this type of work was I kind of in that immediate couple of years after I had left undergrad, I saw a lot of my really highly educated peers really struggle to find work. And they were looking and looking for things that they were qualified for and that they knew they had a strong resume for. And they were struggling for a long enough period of time that they started supplementing their income and smoothing their income by taking on work in the online gig economy, either trying to use Airbnb or drive for Uber or Lyft and so on, a lot of dog walkers on Rover. And when I was looking at this, it kind of occurred to me that people were using this type of work, not for career, but for something that was short-term, temporary, and they wanted to use it just to supplement themselves while they were actually looking for their real job, as they would term it. They didn't think about it in the same way as they might've thought about working at a coffee shop or something that was a brick store that they would kind of go to and work at. And I started thinking about why they were using it in this way and how people were thinking about this type of work differently. And it led me to kind of broader questions about how does this work fit into the traditional model of labor within the United States? And this kind of rabbit hole of investigation led me to these questions on how do we think about policies meant to support or kind of help people on the lower thresholds or kind of maintain a minimum standard of living like the minimum wage, how do those interact with these new types of jobs? And is it significantly different than something that might have been traditionally self-employed? So if I have a bunch of friends who never would have gone out and started their own business, but they're all participating in the same classification of independent contractor, well, what does that do to our market model of labor market protections or the um, social safety net? Well, so, so at a very kind of specific level, why aren't these workers eligible for the minimum wage? And wh what else or not are they eligible for that we think of as kind of standard packages that come with employment? So when we think about what they are and aren't eligible, we broadly can think about things like the Fair Labor Standards Act, the unemployment insurance programs at the state level, the Affordable Care Act, employer-supplied health insurance, retirement, paid sick leave. There's a ton of them, but we won't go into all of the examples. And the primary reason why we don't see them eligible for these things is based off of their legal classification. So Back when the Fair Labor Standards Act was coming into being, kind of one of the deciding moments of labor rights to a degree in the uh, Depression era, we want to think about who was and was not going to become eligible for these types of programs and labor market protections. And you can go back and forth in the literature about why the decision and classification was made, but largely what it turned out was if you weren't working in kind of a clear factory location, something where you had a clear hierarchy of employment, you were not going to be eligible for these programs. And the main thing with the minimum wage was we wanted to find workers who we knew would have an hourly wage that was easily tractable and would be able to be sourced that we could then enforce on. So if you weren't going to an employer week after week after week so we could manage them and enforce it, then you weren't going to get the minimum wage. This meant that people who were self-employed, doing part-time works or inconsistent work generally weren't going to be protected by the same program. And that kind of led to a history of some types of groups or some groups of people not having access to a very particular type of guaranteed minimum standard of living through the minimum wage. Well, Ben, I have a I have a question, which is if if 
workers in the formal sector have some kind of, you know, legally determined uh, basement of what their wage can be. But workers in the gig economy, it's sort of purely driven by the market. How do those two things potentially affect each other? So we can think about the history of kind of the competitive model of the minimum wage. We might expect that if there's some price floor for um, how much someone has to pay for something, in this case, how much an employer has to pay an employee, but they might be able to get comparable work in some other marketplace not regulated, then they might try and seek out that unregulated marketplace whenever they can to substitute in for the potentially more expensive worker. What this actually looks like in kind of a lived experience would be if the minimum wage were to be raised to a high enough level that my employer wanted to start cutting back my hours because it became prohibitively expensive for them to employ me, then I might lose some hours and lose some income. And maybe I might say, oh, Uber is open over here. They're taking anyone who can drive. I'll substitute some of my lost hours over on this market and start driving for Uber part-time to make up some of those lost earnings. Or maybe since the minimum wage is so high, I can't get into a job, I might start looking for other sources of employment, like self-employment, to cover myself because I don't have access to that marketplace. So we can see that if the minimum wage is applied to some people but not everyone, then we can create some of these uncertain transitions in the marketplace as a result of it, where I may be eligible, I may not, I might do both, but it just can muddle up the waters on how the market's actually going to function. But I want you to be more specific about how it might affect the minimum wage, like what the wage actually is, and then how it might affect the average wage in the gig economy. Oh, yeah. So the minimum wage being instituted is going to raise the wage that I can receive in the um, non-exempt marketplace. And if I'm a low wage worker, which can generally have some push up effects on wages that are kind of on the boundary. So minimum wages tend to raise wage rates on anyone who's kind of in that periphery zone of low wage work. And then it can also result in either an increase or a decrease in wages in the non or in the actual exempt marketplace, people who are self-employed or working as independent contractors there. So we can expect that in general, uh, wages going up on the non-exempt marketplace can push people into work in the non-exempt marketplace where we see kind of the negative effects occur. Is there a difference between people who work in the gig economy for companies like Uber drivers versus people who have their own Etsy page? Uh, yeah, I would argue that there is. So we might expect, or the real kind of difference isn't necessarily on the Uber versus Etsy, so much as it is on the Uber versus mom and pop self-employed store. So where the big distinction is, is between online platforms and traditional self-employment. Because where online platforms like Uber, Lyft, Etsy, Airbnb exist and people are engaging in them, they're engaging in them for much lower transaction costs than traditional self-employment actually requires. And this allows them to kind of enter or exit and participate as much or as little as they might see fit. And it acts as a little bit more of a traditional, hypothetical, efficient market. And where these transaction costs are lower, we expect to see larger potential effects from minimum wages. So I would be happy to kind of get into some of the details of my findings from that chapter, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. So what I end up finding is that the minimum wage, when it does get raised in particularly competitive marketplaces, we do end up finding that some workers probably are losing some hours or having a more difficult time entering the marketplace as a result of these higher wages. And this is kind of the traditional finding of minimum wage literature throughout the 90s to a degree and predominantly earlier. And as a result, since people are having a harder time entering that marketplace, harder time maybe getting into a coffee shop gig, they substitute some of that hours that they weren't able to put towards the coffee shop gig towards driving for Uber or Lyft instead. And so you end up finding that there's this boost of employment in the exempt marketplace. And as a result, we see people in those competitive markets kind of moving to this exempt work and potentially losing access to things like the Fair Labor Standards Act or unemployment insurance. 
On the other hand, where we don't see particularly competitive marketplaces, those large urban centers, LA, Chicago, New York, we don't see this effect at all. It looks like when you're in a non-competitive market, somewhere with not really a big expected effect of minimum wage changes, you don't see this push into exempt work, which largely has implied that we increase minimum wages in non-competitive areas, people increase their earnings and don't end up losing out on those hours. And this is actually a really big finding in the literature in that we are finding minimum wages do impact areas differently depending on their competition levels, as I've found using an indicator for county level competitiveness. And there's been a lot of work recently kind of looking at how these effects might change and why we have to think about these large state or federal policies on maybe more of a micro level, how your lived experiences might differ than someone else's, depending on where you live and what the labor market's like around you. Victor, you want to jump in? That makes a lot of sense. Obviously, minimum wages in some contexts are going to price workers out because they're a floor, and some employers uh, won't have the marginal cost structure. Their cost structure in general is going to make it so that they won't hire people they otherwise would at a lower wage, right, Ben? I mean, none of that is controversial, right? That's the nuts and bolts of it. So the nuts and bolts of kind of the theoretical model are exactly that. Really where the controversy for minimum wage literature exists is in the estimation of exactly how large of an effect it is and where that effect is most prevalent. But I think, Victor, what you might be more interested in talking about for minimum wages is what their actual goal is, which is kind of guaranteeing a minimum standard of living for workers and kind of where that fits in something like the future of work. Because I know that you're kind of interested in automation and kind of the changing nature of work. So where do you think kind of that broad goal of a minimum standard of living fits into that? Well, if suppose our goal is a minimum standard of living. If that's our goal, I think distorting markets is a bad way to go about that. I don't know what our goal is, but if that is our goal to have some kind of, let's say, floor in terms of people's standard of living, then having the government tax an economy and redistribute like with a minimum basic income or whatever the terminology is. What is it? I The universal income. Yeah. The universal basic income, right? Yeah. Yeah. UBI. That, that makes more sense because you're not distorting the market. And um, then if that's our goal, that's the way to do it. it it's not. To, Wait, how is that not distorting the market? Because you allow the market to exchange goods and services and allow the allocation of scarce resources to be dictated by prices. And the most efficient use of those resources uh, is what the market will do. And if that means hiring people for whatever amount below the minimum wages, then that's what it means. But then you could give those folks a stipend to get at whatever threshold you want for this minimum income, right? You, You could do it in a more judicious manner where you're not misallocating resources, right? And folks aren't misallocating their labor has been alluded to by taking on jobs they otherwise probably wouldn't take. They'd probably rather work in a coffee shop, but they're priced out. And that the for the employer, they're too expensive. So then they go to Uber instead. Anyway, to me, the minimum wage is a distraction because what we really need to do is make people more productive so they have a higher income. They have higher wages, right? Because your wages are a function of your marginal productivity. So it's about running an economy more efficiently and making folks more productive by giving them skills, education, and technology and combining all that into a more productive labor force that makes higher wages. That, that to me, is the solution to the problem, if, if there is a problem. So how does automation fit into that? Because automation, I mean, what you just said, when people hear automation, they think automation just replaces them. It doesn't make them more productive. It, it takes them out of the, the, the factory or out of the Uber car or whatever. Well, the key to being more productive is to use technology and knowledge to complement your labor and therefore reduce the intensity of the inputs into the production of goods and services. All of that is jargon. Yeah. (laughs) Cuts it like, make all of this clear. Like, what are you Uh, talking about? Okay. So let's give us the folk example of this. I guess let's talk about what we're doing now. So we're creating a podcast. The podcast is satisfying the demand that certain consumers have for information and entertainment. They have alternatives. So they have opportunity costs. They could go to other podcasts. Uh, In order to maximize the entertainment and information value, we need to have knowledge in our heads and we need to have skills. 
And we need to have technology, which is not only Zoom and, and the computers that allow us to connect to that digital platform, but also the way we've organized the Political Economy Forum podcast. You know, we have spreadsheets and Google Docs, and we have organizational frameworks we've come up with, and we have an organizational structure where we've hired grad students to specialize in producing and editing the podcast and putting them online, and we've found a way to market them. And the technology we've used to market includes Twitter and it includes software. And so all of that combined allows us, I suppose, at a lower cost to produce more output that, uh, at higher quanti- quality. And if somehow we gained remuneration for that, we'd gain greater remuneration, right? Like if we had more advertising and the like, or we charged a price for our podcast, right? We, we just have decided not to um, get money for that in a very direct way. But it, it, I guess that's what productivity is, right? It's like magic, I guess, or, or not even magic. It's like a, a recipe where you have the inputs and you complement them with technology and out comes something great of greater quantity and higher quality. I think that it's worth at least kind of pushing a little bit back on the productivity for wage discussion in the context that we're talking about labor markets as they changed over time. And I've brought up kind of competitiveness at the local level. We do know that in environments where workers have lower power or lower options, they can be put in a situation where their productivity isn't actually directly related to their wage, or at least they aren't receiving the full amount of the wage that they might earn given their productivity. So there are scenarios where we can't just push that if you become more productive, you will then earn the equivalent amount of that production increase. Right. What what is needed is the standardization of the actual work so that there's outside options. And with that outside option, you exert leverage on your employer to bid up your wage, right? So that the surplus doesn't only go into the employer's pocket, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the standardization is a function of the technology and its maturity, and that takes time. So there's usually a lag between the increases in your productivity on the shop room floor or the factory, or in this case, the podcasting and what goes into your pocket, right? You need a system where the standardization of the technology allows you, in a sense, almost paradoxically, to be fungible in that you can be easily hired by some other employer. And that ability to be hired away is what gives you the leverage. Uh, That throughout the history of industrial revolutions happens over and over, whether it be textiles, steel, uh, whether it be the mechanization of factory machinery due to uh, first steam and then electricity, whether it be the computer revolution or whether it be artificial intelligence today. We've seen this movie before. So if we could talk about a role of government, it would be in allowing the standardization to happen or to reduce the transaction costs of allowing employers to have more leverage, right? Sorry, employees to have more leverage over their employers, I guess, to have more liquid uh, markets that are healthier and more mature, where you could actually exert this pressure, I would say, but not a minimum wage, because that's the solution to not this problem. That's some other solution. All right. So one thing that I would kind of want to push on for, say, the podcast example, if we're really going to dive into it, is we also want to think about how the technology as it's developed has also increased the potential power of workers and their ability to leave and look for alternative sources, in particular, thinking about Upwork as an option for someone not restricted to, say, programming or coding for their local tech firm, but instead can operate or use their skills across the world. And that's why we were able to see more we can think about it as outsourcing or offshoring of those skills or resources, but really it's just kind of an equal competition across the network of employees. And if we want to think about it in the context of the podcast, we know that there's transaction costs for how you guys are organizing it and attracting your guests. In particular, you chose me as another student or candidate in the Evans school within the kind of umbrella of the University of Washington, but there was nothing preventing you from seeking out other people with expertise on the subject elsewhere in the same way where I don't have access to a ton of people doing podcasts on these types of systems. And there's no real large scale call for expertise on this. And so without that broader network of resources for you guys to choose guests or for me to find podcasts to go talk on, we want to think about how that's similar to an idea of transaction cost limiting potentially the scale of the podcast or that podcast marketplace. I was going to say, Victor is also saying, okay, machines and technology and innovation are helping us do this podcast in ways that we wouldn't necessarily have been able to do it before. But if we stay on the podcast example, let's say a computer could read every single public, a paper published in economics on the minimum wage, for instance, and the gig economy. 
Okay, let's say a computer could do that. And a computer could actually produce kind of basic research if you fed it data. And then a computer could actually interact with us if we had very specific questions like these little uh, chat box. Uh, bot mm -hmm. things, you know, when you go to uh, an airline or to, 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 you know, ask your bank for information or something like that, a not bad computer could replace us on this podcast. Now, the, the real world example that I think people are thinking of is in manufacturing or in things that are very, very capital intensive. Sometimes the, that capital is so good that it just replaces actual workers and what they do. And so Victor's not really addressing the fear that a lot of people have when it comes to automation. And he's only looking at the positive aspect of it. All right. So I'll, I'll acknowledge that I haven't heard Victor's direct argument in its full extent before I do my response. So I'll go off of James framing of Victor's argument. I'm trying to troll him, but I want, I want, yeah. to, I want you to pile on to the troll. All right. I'll pile on. Or, tell, or, or, or let him come in and be very calm. Uh, so I think that there is historical evidence of the fact that as technology advances, there are workers left behind. And those workers who are left behind from the economic point of view, from kind of the aggregate of the pie, often are outweighed by the benefits of technological change. But the idea- Yeah, for society, to, but not for the individual yeah, worker. That's the point. Exactly, exactly. If society benefits, but it doesn't actually do the transition or- kind of moving those benefits of that surplus generated to those workers or to cover the loss, we have a Pareto efficiency problem, which is such a foundational component of economics that we can talk about the globalization or the advance in automation as we're getting surplus all day. But if we then don't satisfy that secondary consideration of using that surplus to then compensate the losers of the transaction and cover those costs of transition into those higher skill or currently available positions, then all we've done is caused losses for others to get gains. So we can think about the surplus in aggregate. And if we take our hands off and kind of stand way back and just look at the surplus, it is clearly there. But that doesn't mean the loss doesn't still exist. And that oftentimes those people who are benefiting are not the same people as who are losing. Okay, Victor, now, now defend your position. Well, first of all, the computers are not substitutes for human capital or labor. They're complements. Why? We have tacit knowledge. We have soft skills. We have uh, human empathy. We have the ability to see connections computers could never make because machine learning algorithms are inductive and you have to feed them data. And we have creativity. We have soft motor skills. We have things that complement the machines. The machines could never replace us on this podcast and they don't replace other folks either. They complement their labor. Now, you do have a more efficient at the intensive margin use of resources, and some folks do become expendable, let's say, in terms of the footprint of a factory or something like that. Uh, but you still need folks for the last mile in terms of the operation of the machinery, in terms of its fine tuning, in terms of its adjustment. Now, on the extensive margin, you might actually see an intensification of manufacturing when you have machines complement the soft skills that computer engineers bring to the process, for example. One of my favorite examples is ATMs. ATMs introduced in the late 70s, early 80s, and they led to a proliferation of bank branches. And there are more bank tellers now than there ever was before ATMs because it reduced the overhead and the marginal cost of running a bank. So banks, as a marketing uh, uh, decision and for other reasons, decided to expand their uh, branches. And so then you have more bank tellers working in conjunction with the ATMs. They have different roles. And the uh, roles that the bank tellers have involve softer skills and more human skills. And in fact, the value added is higher and their wages in real terms are higher. In terms of the fact that folks are left behind, of course they are, but in healthy markets, eventually, uh, when this lagged effect uh, is overcome that I said between um, increases in productivity and the standardization of work, you see folks being employed again, sometimes in realms that are similar to their old jobs, sometimes in new realms, but that's part of the uh, process of creative destruction and real incomes go up all along the distribution in absolute terms, even if the relative distribution tends to get worse. And that's a, a question for another day, like how bad is inequality in relative terms now versus in the past? And are we measuring that the right way, and et cetera? But let's just, I will concede that it's gotten worse, but that says nothing about absolute living standards, which have improved across the board. And the reason is because folks' marginal productivity increases, eventually the standardization 
utilization of technology allows them to be able to have the leverage they need to extract some of the surplus. So I think that there's one primary aspect of that kind of mentality that I, I do still feel we need to push back on. And that's you're still taking a long run. It works out mentality without acknowledging that we don't have the infrastructure to deal with those short term transitions of surplus. And because we don't have a, a way of dealing with that, we are still violating those kind of like initial economic assumptions that it will be all evened out. Because particularly if we think that it's systematic, that there are certain groups of people or certain areas or regions that are losing out more than others, and the gains are going towards those other regions, and we don't look for ways to kind of recycle that, we can end up in situations where we do have just dead towns. And I know this personally from kind of the rural or rust belt of the Northeast, in that I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and you see towns that just lose that manufacturing source and there's no transition for it. And then you end up systematically just saying, well, that region should either find a new type of work, which doesn't exist there, or they need to go move somewhere else. And that's functionally a loss, not just of say employment, but of kind of historical lineage, where people lived, what they were doing there. And it's not that we can just say in the long run, it'll work out. We want to think about what policy-wise or government-wise, what's the deal that people made to do this type of economic system that they then aren't seeing work out for them? And it has real impacts. Ben, in your work, you talk about the importance of thinking about these, these shifts happening at the local level, um, at the city level, maybe even at the state level. So can you kind of walk us through what you see as the viable policy uh, alternatives that different types of places may want to pursue? Is there a general one-size-fits-all approach, or is every place going to have to experiment? And then how long do we have to wait for the results of that experiment before we sort of know what works and why? Yeah, so I think what we found is that one size doesn't fit all and that we have applied federal and state policies generally in the history of the United States as kind of our ways of dealing with this. And we have found that they have had differing effects on regions. So the more localized the policy can be, it is more helpful in general, particularly in environments where we are now able to use the advances in um, algorithms and machine learning, and really just our administration ability has gotten better than it was, and it helps us do more localized policy. With regards to something like the minimum wage, I think that it's clear that we aren't actually able to apply a minimum wage across the board for all types of regions and expect the same types of effects, because cost of livings are so dramatically different. And I think that I fall a little bit more on Victor's side of the minimum wage is not really the most efficient way of accomplishing what its set out goal is. And it's not even really clear exactly why we want to continue to attach things like a minimum standard of living or these types of aggregate social safety net policies to labor when historically it's actually just um, leftover. We used to use these things attached to labor because it was easier to administer them through labor and through employers. But we know that that left a lot of people behind, and it's actually a systematically biased way of administering policy. So I think detaching things from labor and looking towards kind of government policy at an aggregate or targeted level is substantially more effective. But Ben, answering your own question, what is the bargain that was made to that worker in that industrial town in upstate New York? And, and what is, if they lose their job due to automation, what, how should that, what, what changes about that bargain and what they should seek from the social safety net or the state? So I think the bargain that people found or that we have kind of had a social belief in is that if you go to your work, if you're working there, if you are going to an employer day after day after day, you're guaranteed some level of security. And I know that that's not the economic model of it. And Victor might push hard on that point. But there's this social understanding that if you're doing the right things, as they're termed, if you're going there day after day on time, putting your hours in 40 hours a week, you're expecting to be able to make some level of income that's able to support you and your family, depending on the job. And with that income, you're guaranteed some stability in the long term to have a happy, healthy life. And I don't think it's unreasonable for people to think that they should be doing those types of arrangements and to be having that type of an outcome. And it's true that depending on your skill sets or depending on the actual local economics of your environment, you can expect that to vary to some degree, but there's this trust that it'll work out. And I think policymakers have done the best that they could historically to try and guarantee that. And 
minimum wage was one of those elements where we thought if we can guarantee that those people who are working and putting that time and effort in will make some level of money back at minimum, then we're following through on that promise. And we have found that that's not the case anymore, partially because the minimum wage hasn't kept up with cost of living, but also because attaching it to labor has kind of looked less and less convincing of late. I'm probably going to surprise Ben because I think I'm going to be to the left of Ben and my prescriptions. Um, oh, perfect. Yeah, it's a political decision in a democracy what the social contract is and what our social safety net should be like. And I'm all for social safety nets that are smart, just not dumb ones or inefficient ones. And like my point of departure is always it's a solution to what problem, right? If the problem is folks aren't moving to where the jobs are, where the technology is, like the frontier of the technology, then it's about subsidizing the move. If they'd be willing to move, but they are priced out of apartments because of zoning laws, it's about getting rid of the zoning restrictions on the supply of housing. If it's about the fact that they have old folks in their towns and they don't want to leave them behind and they're rooted in their community, then it's about finding ways to bring the technology to them. So that would imply solving market failures around the diffusion of technology, something I look at in my book in progress, which is uh, spelling out market failures to spreading new technological applications uh, and some of the things the government can do with infrastructure or education or skill enhancement or training or procurement of technologies to reach economies of scale and therefore subsidize the cost to folks that need the technology. My biggest prescription, though, short of a very generous safety net, which knows I'm the biggest fan of Sweden, and I like the fact that they motivate risk-taking and entrepreneurship with their venture capital funds and the fact that they their safety net actually motivates uh, risk-taking among young people. The biggest prescription is education because the missing element in allowing us to harness the potential of technology is education. And our education system is completely dysfunctional and it's bad and it doesn't work for folks at the bottom of the distribution or folks that need the knowledge and know-how and uh, even experience to make the technology work for them or for us to reach these more mature labor markets where folks would have uh, more leverage and could actually get closer to their marginal product if they do apply technology. So to me, it's about education. It's about spreading technology. It's about allowing people to move to the jobs. It's about a social safety net. It's about incentivizing risk-taking and entrepreneurship, et cetera, right? I guess my point with Ben was, let's just look at history, though, and understand that this isn't something too generous, what we're going through. It seems to me to follow in line with the problems that earlier industrial revolutions have engendered. It's just that maybe our politics now are more generous or more uh, humanitarian or more charitable or our our ethical compass is improved and we've decided we want government to do more to smooth out some of these transition problems and that's perfectly fine. I don't know if there's evidence of that except for with COVID. I think one of the things that COVID has done that's interesting is allow the United States to experiment with something like universal basic income with these stimulus checks. And these stimulus checks went out to people not based on whether or not they were in the gig economy, but people in the gig economy were in particular need of them. And I'm, I'm curious what you guys think, both in terms of whether or not this was the right response um, during COVID, but also whether or not you think this is likely to inform policies moving forward, either as a success or a failure in terms of using, you know, basically a check cash just in people's hands as a way to stimulate the economy during moments of crises. I'd be, I can jump on that first. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the stimulus checks in particular were one of the largest examples currently of kind of Keynesian economics of just stimulate demand and support savings when we're going through a crisis. And I think it was the right decision and that we probably should be seeing more of that type of spending. I think the bigger thing for me was the pandemic unemployment assistance programs and the CARES Act, and in particular, seeing those boosts to unemployment insurance, which I think we've seen some recent research coming out showing the fact that these large kind of boogeyman narratives of keeping unemployment assistance or unemployment insurance low to prevent people from kind of riding on it and avoiding entering the labor market. A lot of research currently is showing that this boost in unemployment didn't really have a disincentive on work. It didn't really prevent people from entering the labor market when they wanted to. And as we compare different state-based policies, as they've looked at it, 
we really have a good case to make that unemployment insurance should be higher than it currently is, and that we should still be continuing to feed money into that and supporting it in particular during this pandemic. And I think it goes towards uh, Victor's point of kind of targeted policies to support the social safety net. And we've seen that as states and localities have kind of experimented with how to interact this with say, non-traditional workers and non-standard employment arrangements, we've actually found that it's this new age or this new method of applying policy. So this COVID experiment of policy time has actually been the first time when we saw large-scale unemployment insurance applied to gig workers and to independent contractors and self-employed, which has never happened in the U.S. before. And this is the first time that we've kind of said it doesn't really matter how you work. You get access to this social safety net about workers. And this is kind of a brand new opening for labor market policy and targeted policy. The problem is, is there hasn't really truly been a second round of it. And that has me worried. Victor and I have talked a lot about how the United States can literally just print money at this point and give that money to Americans. And it's not doing that. And so, Ben, I think you're not wrong. But I think if you were if if the answer is that this is going to inform policy, why hasn't there been sort of a second wave of this type of stimulus done, particularly right before an election. I mean, that makes no sense to me because mm-hmm. you, typically you would not do it because the, the, the country either can't afford, a country can't afford it, they literally don't have the money or if they were to start printing money, it would cause inflation. So why hasn't the United States done it? Yeah, honestly, I'm in the same camp that I really don't know why it hasn't happened, both from the electorate standpoint of, I feel like it would probably be a good decision for the current administration from an election standpoint to be giving out money in terms of boosting their support, but also just economically, given the circumstances, it would be the right decision to do. So I'm lost beyond the politics side of choosing not to help push a deal through. But I, I think that it would have been the right thing to continue to support it and send out more of that type of funding. Victor, what do you think? I mean, in the countries that you and I study, you all, you, the government is, is specifically saves the money that they have to cut checks or give cash to people right before an election. Why would the United States withhold it? It makes no sense to me. Okay. I mean, I trust what Ben said then. I have nothing to really add. If he says that it's not disincentivizing work, then it seems like a good idea in the short run. And I don't really have much to add on top of that. The big worry is that if it disincentivizes work, you could make people worse off because they don't enter the labor market and they forgo experience and and future wages, right? But I trust his numbers. And so that's the big The question is the politics of it. And that hasn't come. I mean, Lindsey Graham made that point at some point and then people, even Republicans laughed at him. Well, Why I have, isn't the government pursuing I, this as a strategy? I have, I have to say that I'm a little bit different than you guys on the risk to, to trillion dollar uh, um, stimulus. That's where I want to get to the big picture. Sure. Uh, uh, I don't think it's self-evident that $2 trillion stimulus programs actually are a good idea. I wish we had an economy where we could do that. You're right that we have the reserve currency and there are no inflation problems as of yet with that. But can we continue to do that into the future? I wish we could, but the only way to do that is to have a much more productive economy. And that's my big picture contribution here, which is to yeah, say- but what about the election cycle specifically? The big picture doesn't matter. The long run doesn't matter to politicians who have to get elected or reelected in November. Well, I suppose that maybe the Republican Party wants to reconstitute itself with the fiscal, more fiscally hawkish perspective for the Biden administration, the way they did with Obama after his uh, uh, stimulus uh, uh, neo-Keynesian program at the height of the financial crash in 2008, right? So maybe the best card they can play is to just uh, groom themselves for this contrarian penny-pinching role, uh, which is better suited for their uh, ideology up to Trump and maybe some of the people in uh, the, the the former Tea Party folks who completely sold their ideology down down the river to cozy up to Trump, maybe they can just put that hat on and and think that voters aren't going to punish them for it, or they ha- they haven't paid enough attention to the fact that they've been hypocrites, right? So that's my reading of it. Uh, what do we do after Trump? We go back to circa two thousand eight. So I, I think it's it's possible to take that perspective, assuming, I guess there's an assumption of maybe not ill will or kind of skepticism about 
how much they're going to trust the research. But I don't see a case where you could argue for fiscal conscious policy that's not supporting, I would argue, a Keynesian view of kind of stimulus here, particularly because there's a good case to be made that if we aren't reinforcing workers and individuals in the country by either stimulus checks or continued support of more generous unemployment insurance and extending kind of the time you're allowed to be on it, that we're going to hit a much larger financial crash than we would if we have that and be better prepared to pay off the debt of the stimulus. So I think that there's a good case to be made of the fact that $2 trillion today with our expected numbers for how much that's going to cost us in the long run would be much easier to pay off than not having the $2 trillion and trying to pay off what we've already spent. So I I think there's two political dynamics to this. One is sometimes Trump says the honest thing out loud, even when he doesn't mean to. Um, And I think when he said that he didn't want to pass it because it would allow, quote unquote, poorly managed blue states to then essentially subsidize what they were having to pay for. And he, and you know, what that really means is so he doesn't want a Keynesian stimulus for blue states. Now you're thinking, well, he doesn't, he's not going to win blue states. So why does he care? I think he cares about winning the popular vote no matter what. And he's worried about turnout in blue states. So that's one thing. The second thing is I think, and I've just come to this today, exactly what Victor said, which I think McConnell is now increasingly believing that he will be in the minority in the Senate. Uh, after January. And I think Victor is exactly right. They're going to want to do exactly what they did to Obama, limited as much as possible. They know that Biden and Harris have at most two years to go big. Um, they'll, the Democrats will lose a ton of seats in 2022. McConnell knows that. He's biding his time. Um, he's playing the long game. And he'll probably still win a Senate seat, so he's not personally worried about it. But he knows at this point there's probably very little that can be done to affect anything to help the, uh, the Republicans win. And so he's really playing the long con on this in ways that um, I, I think, Victor, you're exactly right. It's, it's what they did with Obama in, in starting in 2009. And it will work for them. It will work for them, right? The Tea Party came out of that. Um, and, and there will be a massive wave against whatever the Biden-Harris administration is able to do in two years. I think. And, and also, I mean, remember Biden's number one priority is going to have to be COVID. It's not really going to be the economy. The economy is wrapped up in that, of course, but I think, you know, the, he, he's going to have other things that he has to worry about. Obama's first thing was the economy and that. And so I think that's what their strategy is. I'm, I'm interested in kind of that perspective of if we're going to, if there's the expectation that the Republicans are going to pick up seats in 2022, if the democratic approach for dealing with COVID and dealing with the economy is these large scale, broad stimulus packages. You think that people getting checks directly to them, as opposed to say large business bailouts will hurt the Democrats in the same way as it did in 2008? I'm not sure if I understood your question, but Um, I'm saying at the, at the legislative, at the policymaking level, I don't think McConnell, I don't think the, I think McConnell or parts of the Republican party literally don't believe in Keynesian stimulus. Like they don't want this. They don't want this, you know, regardless of the election, they don't want it. So they actually don't want this to happen anyway. So then when they have the ability to, they, they can't really make it happen or not make it happen now. Um, I mean, I guess they could make it happen now, but they don't want to do that. They don't have a reason to do that politically. And what they can do instead, if they're playing the long con, is just constrain the degree to which the Democrats can pursue it if the Democrats win the White House and win the Senate, which is what they did when Obama won in 2008. And he had a 60-proof majority. He had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate for a while. You know, before Teddy Kennedy got sick. I can try and reframe my question then and see if it doesn't work again, then I'll just leave it at that and say it's your expertise and not mine. And I'll go from there. I think for me, when I think about the effect of kind of more conservative mentalities towards the budget, the bailouts towards firms in recovery from 2008 financial crash looked less advantageous than bailouts to people, which we see in kind of the stimulus checks. Oh, Ben, who do you think Mitch McConnell has lunch with on a Tuesday afternoon? Give me a break. I mean, I'm just saying, I think it'll be less of a negative hit on Democrats when they're sending checks to people than it would be on a negative hit to Democrats when they sent checks to AIG. Oh, yes, I agree with that. Yes, I agree with that proposition. But I I was agreeing with Victor that I think one of the ways the Republican Party may try to rebrand itself if they do lose is as the fiscal hawks. And McConnell is setting himself up for that. 
they don't care about how this affects normal people. They they only care about how how it affects corporations or business and their yeah, friends. I, I'm just thinking that the fiscal hawk play might not be as effective this time when the fiscal hawk is saying, we know we don't want you, the person, to be getting the check, as opposed to, no, we don't want the firm ah, to be getting the check. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah I agree that's with what that. I'm I, think Biden, I think Biden is absolutely going to be pushed in a Keynesian direction, particularly if they win back the Senate and, yeah, and, and Pelosi increases her, her House seats. I think it's a mistake to focus on Keynesianism because, to me, in order to afford Keynesianism which is, let's say, a stimulus reaction when you're in a ditch, you have to have a much more productive economy the way we did after World War II. And so to me, there's a left of center argument for supply side uh, focus that allows you to grow the pie and to worry about efficiency. So we've been talking about distributional issues and like who benefits and loses in the short run, but in the long run, we can all win if we can afford a better safety net and the need for stimulus once investors do run out of patience with us down the road at some point. I mean, you, you might have the reserve currency and endless investor patience today, but not necessarily tomorrow. And to me, on the supply side, it's about finding a way for the government to solve certain market failures or reduce transaction costs around uh, a new economy that could really be supercharge prosperity and solve some of the distributional problems that keep uh, bedeviling the country. And, and it's around infrastructure uh, uh, that could undergird uh, artificial intelligence and the internet of things. It's about uh, better uh, uh, internet access and, and uh, propelling 5G forward. Uh, private companies are tasked with doing that, and that's fine, but there are areas where the government's auctioning policies and zoning uh, and land use policies could help. It's about education, as I said before, and it's about the ability to help, let's say, diffuse uh, technology and um, some of the skills in a, in a more widely and maybe uh, narrow the gap between the potential of artificial intelligence and machine learning and all these things uh, and devices communicating with each other. And the fact that it takes a while, there's this lag. So maybe we could find a way to reduce that lag time versus other industrial revolutions where, for example, it took electrification 80 years uh, between uh, Edison's inventions and the fact that it became a, a general purpose technology. So I actually think the government can do a lot of the things that's done before, things it did during uh, the computer age, for example, or, or new things to accelerate some of the problems where, as Ben said, you might have higher uh, productivity because you're using technology and you have the right education, but you don't have the thick liquid markets where you could actually leverage that or you don't have the uh, labor power you would want. So I actually think that stimulus stuff is not a distraction per se, because we're in a ditch right now. But at the end of the day, there's better uses of the government's bandwidth, I think, or, or not better, but they, it shouldn't crowd out the fact that government could help solve market failures when it comes to um, the fourth industrial revolution and some of the things that are really going to help us finance some of these things in the future. So Victor, I agree with you. And that's why I think I think that is a version of what the McConnell trap is for Biden. Because I think Ben is right that if Biden and Harris win, they win in the Senate and Pelosi keeps, keeps the house where it's at or even wins a few seats, they will be pulled to the left to have a more Keynesian response precisely because you know, these are the same politicians and their same supporters from you know, 12, 13 years ago when uh, Obama didn't take that approach. And I think Biden and Harris are gonna be pulled in that direction. I think McConnell knows that that's a trap. I think you could give the you could give every American a $20,000 check and the Democrats are still gonna lose their majority in 2022. So it, it doesn't really matter politically for Biden and Harris how big their Keynesian response is. It's not gonna be adequate in that short time period for them to be able to keep control. I think McConnell's playing the long game, and I think he knows that. So he's gonna—he's actually letting the Democrats potentially pass a bigger stimulus, and he knows that things won't have turned around in time for it to help them electorally in the future. That's my very cynical view on this. There's two things about this that are kind of stick out to me. One is, if we're talking about Keynesian approach and the value of it, I think Victor has a point about if we're going to spend two trillion dollars, there's a lot of ways we can do it. And for me, I think that. 
whatever Keynesian approach we take, as long as the $2 trillion are entering the market, and personally, I think that it's better value entering the market at the individual level rather than the firm level, that's the Keynesian approach I would like to see. And I think the second point of it, while politically, if we're going to see the Democrats lose in two years after they supposedly take control in the election, hopefully, I'll throw that out for myself, but... uh, if they do take control in 2020 and they are going to lose it in 2022, I think the big push that they could potentially have larger long-term effects if they were going to use this Keynesian approach would be in a restructuring of how we do labor and the social safety net. And in particular, detaching labor from the social safety net would probably be the biggest change they could have in redoing something like the Fair Labor Standards Act for the modern age and trying to address some of this future of work and automation and the problems that we've been seeing. So if they wanted to really make a big statement or make a big stand to say, look, we are the party of the future and we're going to do things to actually kind of right the wrongs of maybe the forgotten worker of the globalization and neoliberalist push, they'd be doing things like not attaching your healthcare to a worker that might leave in the next 10 or 15 years to go find a more productive zone and not attaching someone's retirement futures to an employer who might drop them or move them to part time. And so the detachment of the social safety net from labor, as we've been seeing these new non-standard work arrangements occur, could be a way to both introduce a Keynesian approach of supporting us out of this pandemic and also creating a long-term lasting effect that really supports kind of that labor base of the Democratic Party in the Rust Belt. Well, great. I think that's a great place to end. Thanks a lot, Ben Glasner. Thanks a lot, Victor Minaldo. Thank you. Great Thanks. to be here. This was fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.